Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And we've been covering a lot of the the really big topics lately, rather than just kind of covering whatever we want. And we're jumping into, I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's one of the biggest. We're going to be doing a very, very deep dive on the SARS-2 coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it. And Xander actually led all the research doing a very, very deep dive into the numbers regarding not just case fatality ratio, but all sorts of other risks that it poses, and essentially answer the following question, why is this coronavirus a big deal? Right. And the question might be, you know, well, we already roughly know what the death rate is for coronavirus, for COVID-19. It's been talked about quite a lot. So when we get into the show, I'll, I'll tell a quick anecdote about sort of what made me want to investigate this a little bit more, because in my mind, the, the question to ask was, is dying the only risk or are there other risks? And clearly, if you've uh, been following you know, stories uh, about younger people being hospitalized for COVID, you're aware that are, there are some kind of strange complications that, that are associated with this disease that are confusing a lot of doctors. So we'll get into all of that after we talk about uh, this month's special podcast on the Agora Network. Yes. And speaking of the Agora Podcast Network, we actually have a fairly new member that Xander and I have forgotten to tell you guys about. So we're, uh, we're doing it better late than ever. But um, it's Sam Hume, who, uh, for those of you who came to Intelligent Speech, uh, I was his moderator. Uh, we had a great time talking about, um, well, talking about all sorts of stuff, uh, but, but talking about a, a really interesting incident in World War II. And he is the host of two podcasts that are now part of the network. One of them is Pax Britannica, and the other is The History of Witchcraft. So he's a big-time history buff and uh, has the education to back it up. Pax Britannica is a narrative history that follows the British Empire. Um, season one is all about the early English colonization of the Americas, the Caribbean, Ireland. And season two gets into... Apparently, the War of the Three Kingdoms, which is probably not the Chinese romantic epic. I don't know, but we'll find out. I am listening to Pax Britannica, so I'll find out what season two is about soon. And then uh, the history of witchcraft covers the witch crazes of the early modern period. 
also covers the trials of the Knights Templar, the origins of Halloween, magic in ancient Egypt, Rome, Greece, Persia, um, and Anglo-Saxon in England. Both of these are found everywhere you find good podcasts. I actually haven't listened to the history of witchcraft, but now that I've read the blog, it sounds really cool. Yeah, for folks who have been a fan of Reconsider for a while, we're actually kind of the oddball on the Agora Podcast Network because we cover current events, political issues, so on and so forth. A lot of folks on Agora have really high quality history podcasts, though, and it's mm-hmm. it's I think I would say a majority uh, history podcaster oh, yeah. network. So if and if, a ton of PhDs, too, yeah, in the in their subjects. Exactly. These are these are often experts at what they're talking about, but they they're creating the podcast not because they want to write more academic articles, articles, but because they want to share the things that they're passionate about with people who don't have PhDs. So they don't dumb any of this down. But, you know, they're not talking about the scratch patterns on some ancient Egyptian like tool for like (laughs) things that clearly no one except other historians care about. So a lot of this stuff is really high quality. If you haven't checked out other Agora Podcast Network shows, if you're a history fan, I really, really recommend it. For sure. All right, Xander, the coronavirus and risks maybe beyond the death rate. What's going on? Yeah, I think a good place to start here was a conversation that I had with a friend of mine, actually, recently. And his wife is a nurse at a local hospital down in the Los Angeles area. And uh, we were kind of catching up, and uh, clearly the, the subject of COVID came up. And he was mentioning, you know, uh, my wife has said that unlike sort of the first wave in April or May, maybe 25% of people being hospitalized between the age of 20 and 40. And I, I, I was actually kind of surprised by that because that seems like an extremely wow. high number. Yeah. You know, that's a quarter of all hospitalizations are people that we've kind of generally come to think are not really at risk. Of COVID. And I have a lot of friends of friends who have, you know, since May and June gone out and started to be a little bit more lax about their social distancing. And, you know, once you see that case fatality rate, the CFR of 0.1% or 0.3% for your age group, you know, because 20 to 29 year olds are only about 0.1% likely to die if they get COVID and 30 to 39 year olds are 0.3%. A lot of people have kind of been going out and figuring that this isn't really something that um, is posing a big risk to them. And I, I want to be clear that if, if something does not pose a big risk to us or society, then we should think about you know, what, you know, how we're responding to it. I think that's a reasonable position to have. But once my friend mentioned this to me, this 25% of hospitalizations of being of young people, I kind of went, oh, okay, so what's going on here? Uh, especially because his wife also said that often um, people who are hospitalized for COVID walk away with what appears to be long-term damage. And this is especially true if they're yeah. put on some sort of ventilator. So right. permanent damage to your pulmonary system, cardiac system. And then, of course, there are lots of other strange things that we'll get into. Yeah, and, and stuff that we don't even know yet. And I think one, one, when, Xander, you mentioned like, you know, how, what the risks look like determine how we should respond to it. I think part of what I found so valuable about Xander's research here is it, um, is it debunks a number of kind of alternative, or at least not debunks, but at least challenges a number of, of alternative societal responses that people who want to be a little bit more laissez-faire have come up with, right? So, so you know, if, if we think about kind of the, the current, uh, the, the status quo in the United States is that 
you know, we had a, a sort of lockdown and there are also still businesses that face a lot of restrictions, stuff on the economy. You have a lot of people who are unemployed. It's causing tons of federal debt. It, it it's it's a the response is causing its own damage. Right. And a lot. And also people are you know kind of going stir crazy or at least they were. Um, and now maybe they're just acting out and, and going to the beach. But but, you know, so, so there are, you know, the response that we have, it, it's it's a tough you know, it's a it's a tough thing to swallow. Um, and, and again, causes some damage. So, so, you know, I've talked to a number of people that say, well, look, there's all these potential alternatives for a example, right? If we look at the case fatality rate, as we know it, the CFR, you know, you don't start to get very high, um, CFRs until people are over 65, right? So, uh, 65 to 74, it's 9.5%. 75 to 84, it's almost 20%. And 85 plus it's 30%, which is massive, right? Like, like imagine getting a disease where you have a one in three chance of being killed by it. It's it's insane, you know. But oh, excuse me. But we've got um, you know a, a CFR of 0.1 percent down in the 20 to 29 range. There's all sorts of things, you know. If you compare that 0.1 percent to all sorts of other things that kill you, maybe it's not a big deal. So could we, for example, just quarantine old people, right? High risk people, they should quarantine. Everyone else is fine, right? That's one option that we could discuss as a society that would be less disruptive to the economy and life and all that stuff. Um, and so getting into some of these details, I think is going to help us understand, um, at least I, I think for me, it gives, it gives me more sympathy for the reasoning behind, you know, experts, uh, such as Dr. Fauci and everyone working with him and, and other experts that, that advised governments in, um, you know, Europe and, and the Commonwealth countries and East Asia to have the kinds of quarantines that they did that were much broader across different age groups, you know, all age groups in society, rather than just focused on the elderly. Right. And um, it's worth noting that this is this podcast is actually sort of an accompanying podcast to a series of articles that we've published on reconsidermedia.com. And they are uh, much more data centric. It's 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 really essentially data journalism. We took a lot of official numbers um, you know, published by the CDC and other sources, which we'll get into in detail. And we made an infographic. It's the first time that I have ever made an infographic. We've had <laughs> so, um, you know, don't be kind. Let us know what works about it, what's clear about it, what's not clear about it. We'd love the feedback because we uh, we think that infographics are especially effective at communicating certain types of data that may otherwise be compli- uh, complicated. Because, you know, if, if you see things written out in fractions and fractions of fractions and symbols and whatever, that's one thing. But if you just see like 500 people like in figurines in front of you and see which ones are infected and which aren't, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more intuitive, like more of a gut feeling. So that that was the idea behind this. But you can see uh, parts one and parts two are live right now. And hopefully by the time we publish this podcast, part three will be out. And there's a lot of rich data, but really I'm trying to represent this data in like as uncomplicated a way as possible. And I, I came up with, I think it's kind of a cute line of like, hopefully this infographic takes the ick out of statistics. Eh, it's a dad joke. Uh, I know, I know, I know. Stick with me. But all that if said- you guys, If you guys, if you want to turn this episode off now and just move on, I don't, I, <laughs> I, I don't blame you. Um, all I have to say, there's, there's, visual information accompanying this podcast. If you find that the numbers are kind of flying past you a little bit quickly, and it's hard for me to listen to a lot of numbers and process them, I understand it. Check out the website. Um, Now, with all things related to COVID risk and COVID health and COVID data, 
a lot of, um, you know, online platforms are really focusing on limiting the spread of misinformation. And actually, since we're trying to grow the Reconsider platform and all that, we've been testing, you know, advertisements on Google and Facebook and, and so on and so forth to see just kind of like what it looks like because we haven't really done it much before. And I, when I was testing out an ad on Google, I found that using COVID as a keyword is not something that they're allowing you to do. And I actually ran into that on, a, on other platforms as well. And I think that's a good thing because yeah. <laughs> there is a lot of misinformation going around right now. Well, and, and people might want to sell whatever snake oil they've got recently to, you know, to unsuspecting, you know, unsuspecting folks and, and all, that, all that junk. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's pretty reasonable uh, if you're listening to this podcast or frankly reading anything online about COVID that isn't from like an immediately recognizable and trustworthy source to wonder, you know, who are these people? Are they credentialed to talk about this stuff? And, you know, what are the sources of all the data and information that you're using? So we, we thought it was kind of worth a caveat moment before we actually get into, into the numbers to just kind of like, if you're new to the show, um, tell you who we are. If you've been around for a while, uh, just kind of remind you of what our backgrounds are so you can assess all of the analysis and information that we're presenting you in the context of our own credentials. Yeah. So uh, my credentials are, you know, somewhat non-existent here, right? I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not even a statistics wonk the way that, that Xander is. So I'll be playing, you know, to some extent in this, I'll be playing the part of... Uh, uh, you, the audience, um, as I kind of ask Xander to pick into certain stuff and I, I kind of form my own reactions as we go here. Um, but I, th- I've got a few, I've got a few thoughts that I think might be helpful that, that I did take, I did take like enough, uh, statistical analysis, um, when I was at MIT to be dangerous. Uh, but I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to keep my, my conclusions limited, let's say. Sure. Um, and I'm not an epidemiologist either. I'm not a health expert. I'm, I am pretty good with numbers and my uh, work experience here and my educational experience. Uh, went to Cornell, got uh, an undergraduate degree in economics. Um, I worked in finance and investment banking for several years. So working with lots of numbers when you know, accuracy was pretty important. Uh, lots of different types of both financial analyses and market and economic analysis. Uh, so statistics were related there. Um, I have managed a, you know, good size of money when I, when I uh, raised funds for my startup, um, had to deal with, you know, numbers down to the detail there. And then when I worked as a geopolitical analyst for several years at geopolitical futures, did a lot of sovereign financial, like wealth and economic risk analysis and data crunching in that role as well. And in, in a month, I'll be starting a master's degree at UC Berkeley in data science. So I'm not a health expert. I have some experience with numbers and all of the sources that I'm using for these, this analysis is available on our website at reconsidermedia.com. And I'll explain, I'll walk through on this podcast where all the numbers come from, what some of the problems uh, of those numbers may be that might kind of obfuscate the analysis a little bit. But we thought it was important for you to know all that. Yeah. So you wanted to talk hospitalizations, right? Yeah, I think it's a good place to start because that's kind of where this investigation started for me was this conversation with my friend. So clearly there's a difference between uh, statistical data, which is, you know, you go out and you take a sample of lots of different pieces of information and try to, you know, figure out what the trend, what the tendency of that data means and anecdotal data, which is one person, uh, one person's observation. And anecdotal data is not inherently 
less useful than statistical data, but it's different. So you need to know how to treat it differently. And so mm. this, my friend's wife's observation that, you know, maybe 25% of people there were young adults age 20 to 40. Um, that is an anecdotal observation. So the first thing that I wanted to understand was, you know, is this representative of hospitalization rates around the country? Um, does her anecdotal observation sort of line up with the statistical data that's being collected by organizations in the U.S. that monitor health risks? And the short answer is yes. When you look at the rate of hospitalizations by age group, people aged 20 to 40 account for about 20% of all COVID-related hospitalizations, which is pretty close to the 25% estimate that uh, my friend's wife had, right? Ooh, it's actually possible both of these numbers are right. And the reason for that is that it could be the case, like she said she noticed an increase in the percentage of people who are, you know, in that 20 to 40 age group, which means if she's seen an increase, it could be that it's 25% now. Previously, it was lower and, and the all-time average is 20%. So it could well be, we don't know. But it could well be that the all-time average of hospitalizations of people 20 to 40 for coronavirus is 20%. And the current, you know, if you take a snapshot of the hospitals in L.A. now, could be 25%. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's, that's quite high. It's a little surprising because everything mm-hmm. we, we've read about the coronavirus has, not everything, but most things. <laughs> God, sorry, I always try to like... Be careful with my language there. Literally everything. Literally. Not figuratively, literally. Literally. <laughs> literally. literally. <laughs> if, if you haven't listened to our Halloween episode, you're, you're missing out on a fun one. So 20%, 20% of, of people hospitalized for COVID are between the ages of 24. That sounds really high to me because most places are talking about this death rate, CFR. And you've heard that maybe it's, you know, 3% total for all cases, but when you disaggregate it by age group, it's much lower. And the, the figures that I'm going to keep referring to are 0.1% for 20 to 30-year-olds and 0.3% for uh, 30 to 40-year-olds. Which is literally microscopic. It's quite small. I mean, that if you catch that, you're, if you catch COVID and your chances of dying are one in a, one in a thousand, you know, it's not, that's not a huge risk of dying. But still... All of these young people who aren't going to die are ending up hospitalized for severe cases and sometimes walking away with what some health professionals think could lead to permanent or be permanent uh, long-term health damage. So that, that kind of got me thinking that maybe you know the death rate isn't necessarily the best way to think about the, all of the risks that COVID pose to all of us in different age groups. And specifically, my, my analysis does include all of the different age groups, so you can kind of see what they are. But a lot of it was really focusing on this 20 to 40-year-old uh, age group because I've been a little dismayed over the course of the last two months as I've seen friends of friends begin to kind of return to normality despite all of these uh, reports of long-term consequences of people going on for two or three months after they've you know, tested negative for COVID and still experiencing extreme fatigue or shortness of breath or some of these neurological disorders. And I kind of went, okay, so are we missing a way that we should be thinking about the risk of COVID? And I thought that hospitalization risk was as good a place to start as any, because we know that young people are being hospitalized. And the, the other reason I like hospitalization as a metric here is that 
you know, one of the things that if you've been if you've been paying a lot of attention to Fauci at all, what they're saying is that the major, you know, when they talk about flattening the curve, it's not even about reducing the number of people who die from coronavirus. It's flattening the curve. It's not it's 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 like taking something that could spike and, you know, the same area under the curve. Right. Just flatter. And so why is that so important? Well, what they noticed pretty early on was that the hospitalization rate could be quite high for this. And what that means is that, you know, there, there is a limited, you know, there's a limited hospitalization uh, capacity in the United States and different parts of the United States. And if you exceed that, what happens? Well, one, um, and there's, there's like a bit of anecdotal evidence of this. One, people don't get proper treatment, right? So like, okay, we're out of ventilators. So the next person who comes in who needs a ventilator doesn't get one. So that's one problem. Two, you know, you start packing beds together. So you, you, uh, you know, you're spreading the coronavirus even more. So you don't have the sanitization and, and separation that you need. And then three, right? Like there's all these other things that hospitals can't do if they're packed to the gills with coronavirus patients. Um, and at some point it gets so bad that they're like, I can't let you in. Like we're, it's just full. Like you're just, you're just going to die in the streets now. And so what that means is that the case fatality rate for coronavirus would change if you couldn't go to a hospital, right? And so, so the current case fatality rate depends on a certain, you know, hospital, like hospitals functioning. If they break down and fall apart and you have this excess number of people that need hospitalization or need ventilators that aren't getting it, a lot more people are going to die. And then think about all the other people that have to go to the hospitals anyway. They weren't even built for the coronavirus, right? They were built for all the other things that people need to go to the hospital for, and those people could die. Right. And that's where it can get really, really ugly. Um, And so we don't hear about this hospitalization rate frequently, but the risks of, you know, the risks that that we need to think about regarding the hospitalization rate are both for the individuals who are getting sick. Right. And the potential long term consequences that they're facing, even if they don't die. But then also the societal risk of filling hospitals to the gills. And what happens to society there? How do you, you know, and, and it's hard to predict. And all sorts of people are doing all sorts of modeling of this that, that uh, are probably a little beyond our ken here. But um, at least conceptually, you can imagine if hospitals are full, a lot more people are going to die than if they're not full. So there's a somewhat binary, not quite binary, but close to bi- literally binary outcome. Yeah, and actually that that reminds me that I should have mentioned um, my friend's wife, the nurse who works at this hospital down in L.A., has also said that, you know, the hospital is completely full now, again, with COVID patients. They've run out of rooms and they're putting people on beds in hallways and floors of the hospital, wherever there's room for them. So it was in in the context of that conversation where I heard this 25%-ish figure. Um, Now, you might be thinking, how can that be if so many people are if the majority of people dying are old, how can so many young people be hospitalized? And I think it's instructive to actually just quickly read through sort of all the age groups and what percentage of total hospitalizations have occurred by age group. And I think you'll raise an eyebrow at this and I'll get into why. But so 20 to 40, we've already talked about that's 20 percent of all hospitalizations have been young adults, 20 to 40. 13 percent of all hospitalizations have been adults aged 40 to 49. 29% have been adults aged 50 to 64, 20% adults aged 65 to 74, 11.5% adults aged 75 to 84, and about 6.5% of all hospitalizations have been aged 85 plus. And you'll notice that that figure shrunk as you got into the older categories, and you might think, how can that be? Well, 
it just really has to do with the demographics of the country. There are a lot more people aged 20 to 40 than there are people aged 74 to 85 plus. I mean, there are 88 million adults aged 20 to 40, another 40 million adults between 40 and 50. So right there, you're at uh, you know about 130 million people and adults aged 74 and above only account for about 20 million of the U.S. population. So while they may be at greater risk of dying, if you were to actually go to a hospital with a lot of COVID patients and rock, walk around, you'd actually see about a third of all of them would be between 20 and 50, which is a, lot, a little bit of a different story than we're used to hearing when, you, when we read about the case fatality rate. Um, and we have a, a graph on part one of this series on reconsideredmedia.com breaking out the U.S. population by age so you can kind of see what this looks like. Now, what are the risks that come with being hospitalized? It's We're still learning, ultimately, right? Because there has been no long-term study of COVID because there hasn't been a long-term where it's we've- been no long-term. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we don't know yet. Um, but as time has gone on, we've started to learn that this doesn't seem to just be a pulmonary disease. It, it seems like it may be affecting the cardiovascular system, the heart, and that kind of makes sense because we know that people with underlying heart conditions are more susceptible to um, severe risk. We've also read a lot about um, people with neurological symptoms. Like, for example, uh, there's been uh, um, studies in Spain and uh, some other country. I have, I have links on, on the article where, let's see, 57% of all patients in this one study were found to have some sort of neurological disorder or symptom after recovering from COVID. Now, it's important to note that the mean age of that study was, I think, 64 so that means that, you know, it, it may be looking at slightly older people on average, but a majority of those patients walked away with some sort of neurological symptom. And that can be things ranging from what they call ICU delirium, which. Oh, can I can I talk about ICU delirium? Oh, please do. Oh, my God. It's my favorite. It's my favorite. Like, if you need to scare someone straight into not getting the effing coronavirus, here, here it is. So literally. 80% of patients on a ventilator suffer from hallucinogenic state known as ICU delirium, during which they form false, often frightened memories. For example, quote, the 35-year-old COVID-19 survivor Leah Blomberg doesn't remember being rushed in the intensive care unit where she would spend 18 days fighting for life on a ventilator. What she does remember is far more traumatic. Quote, I woke up to something that I would never have imagined, Blomberg told me. A nurse was standing over her hospital bed with a saw, cutting off her arms and legs. Blomberg remembers yelling for help, which of course she couldn't do because she's on an effing ventilator. At one point, she tried to touch her face and realized with horror that only half of her skull was intact. I was positive they were trying to kill me, she said. Another patient... We've had delirious patients who are taken into an imaging center at the hospital to get an MRI, Jackson told me. As they're being pushed into the MRI machine, quite appropriately, they're convinced that they're being moved into an oven because that MRI machine bears some vague resemblance in their mind to an oven. Jackson, Jackson, who is a psychologist uh, at the ICU Recovery Center, so he has to deal with all this PTSD, says that uh, says he sees this delusion quite frequently. Um, in his work at the ICU Recovery Clinic. He also regularly sees patients who misremember a procedure involving a catheter as a sexual assault. Um, so, look, dude, if you end up on a ventilator, 
probably like not only is this a miserable experience where you have this tube shoved down your throat to help you breathe for months you've got a catheter stuck inside you and you can't move and you you know your your muscles atrophy right and you have a 77 percent chance of getting lung scarring like if you're an athlete good luck ever being an athlete again but you're gonna walk out of there with ptsd from all these things that didn't even happen because you think you've been literally sexually assaulted or stuck into an oven or having your limbs chopped off it just the the like the risk of death aside going to the hospital with coronavirus sounds like the worst thing i can it's not well literally the worst thing i can imagine it's like it's a room 101 scenario through and through it sounds horrible we're gonna have this entire generation of people that walk out with icu delirium ptsd not fun man yeah, and so that, that number that you mentioned, 80% of people who go on ventilators experience some version of IC delirium. You might be wondering, what's the chance that I go to a ventilator if I end up in a hospital? Well, based on the stats in New York City, there's about a one in five chance that you're going to need that sort of critical care. So well, One in five chance that you get it. It may be the case that you need it and don't get it, depending on the situation of where you end up at the hospital. Because wherever right. you're going, like it just happens to be the case. That if you're, you know, if you're in a, a region that has a lot of coronavirus cases, there's a higher risk that you're going to get it. And if you get it and need to go to the hospital, there's a higher risk that you can't even get a freaking ventilator. Right. So like these risks compound massively. Yeah. And just just think about, you know, the difference between these numbers. I mean, forget for a second even what they represent, right? 80% of people uh, going on ventilators have this thing. One in 5% chance if you end up in a hospital, you need a, a ventilator compared to the CFR numbers that you've heard, 0.1%, 0.3%. It's just an order of magnitude different. And, and, and when you're talking about risk, like the We're difference- multi, No, no, no. Multiple orders of magnitude different. Right. Yeah. An order of magnitude yeah. is like 10 times, right? Yeah. So it doesn't go from 0.1 to 1. It goes from 0.1 to like 10. Yeah. Yeah. So- this this is why I think looking at hospitalization risk is a, a a more comprehensive way to understand sort of what danger we're at. And when we're talking about these neurological disorders, uh, in a way, all the the very real scary uh, hallucinate hallucinate uh, hallucination cases that you painted, Eric. That's those really kind of represent the the mild end of neurological disorders that have been observed with COVID. Because a lot of these people who get ICU delirium, even though they suffer very legitimate PTSD, don't have long-term physical effects. Right. Um, they are not neurological diseases that persist, but lots of They just need therapy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and unfortunately, those are not the only types of neurological disorders that have been associated with COVID. So um, a lot of people have developed uh, fatal brain diseases. Um, one of these is called acute disseminated encephalomyelitis or ADEM. Ooh, well yeah, right. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I hope I pronounced that. It's the right. hardest part about being an epidemiologist, <laughs> be able to freaking read anything. <laughs> That's not true. Epidemiologists have a very hard job. Yeah, no, no kidding. Um, for short, it's Adam, A-D-E-M. And so this disease has now been associated with COVID and it is on the more severe end of things because it can cause permanent brain damage that leads to either visual loss or permanent paralysis. And in this one study um, from, let's see, I read about it in the Journal of Neurology and it looks like, yeah, it was actually published in the Journal of Neurology. What's particularly scary about the risks from Adam from COVID is that 
the patient's chances of developing this this neurological disease um, only depended upon whether or not they had COVID. It did not depend on the severity of the respiratory disease that COVID-19 caused for that patient. So a lot of them might have had very mild respiratory um, symptoms and then develop Adam. Um, then there's other people, um, other patients of COVID who had developed this thing called uh, Guillain-Barre, which is an awful, awful uh, neurological disorder that causes permanent paralysis. And it's um, a lot of, or at least some patients who have had Guillain-Barre have described it experientially like what it's like living through is similar to muscular dystrophy so it's not the same disease it's different but a lot of the you know psychological struggles that you deal with going through this permanent paralysis disease are related to are are similar to ms and so guillain-barre again on the more severe end of the neurological disorders that have been associated with covid now cool sounds fun huh yeah yeah so it's you know and and the the God, I remember just early on. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. this This is one of many moments to reconsider, hopefully. I remember early on, you know, I saw stuff where, you know, the, the world's health experts were starting to freak out. They're like, holy crap, this is bad, right? And I remember seeing stuff where people were posting, there's only 32 confirmed cases in the United States. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the, the, the whole challenge that these guys have, or these folks have, is that they need to take early indicators and try to project out what's possible and make some risk-based decisions based on that. And they looked, you know, they, they like, we actually had the blessing in the West of China having to go through this and for us to go now, China didn't share a lot of data, um, uh, which didn't help. So like F China as usual, but um, you know, but we at least had some heads up to this. So we had some early data and like, Stuff like this is why these guys started to freak out. Now, of course, they didn't even have the data that we have now about how bad it is. But I remember seeing stuff where it's like, oh, there's only 30 cases. There's only 100 cases. There's only 10,000 cases. There's only 100,000 cases. Why are we freaking? You know, it's not nearly as bad as the flu yet. It's not as bad as the cold yet. Why are we freaking out? It's like, well, yet is the point, right? And what's actually pretty incredible as we learn more about this and all of the awful stuff. Uh, associated with the coronavirus, if you get it, um, which, by the way, at this point, like if you live in the U.S., you probably will, but um, still try not to. But but the the foresight that a lot of these that a lot of these experts had 
Uh, by being able to see some of these symptoms popping up and go like, okay, this is really abnormal. This is not a flu. This is not a cold, right? Is, is, um, was quite impressive. And of course, we're spending over an hour with you describing all of, not even all of, like just samples that we pulled of what makes this so dangerous. And of course, unless you're willing to do that research yourself, you've got to make a choice of like, oh, am I going to listen to Dr. Fauci, who is saying, look, this isn't a cold, this isn't a flu, this is actually really scary. Or am I going to listen to the Facebook post that grandma sent me that says, well, only 3,000 people have died and 67,000 people died of the flu last year. So what are you scared of? Right. Um, there's a reason for this. So I hope it's a learning opportunity for, for everyone. I, I fear it might not be, but, you know, anyway. And the comparison with the flu is a really good one. That's actually we're going to come back to that a little bit later in this episode and, and mm-hmm. really do an in-depth comparison of some of the risks from COVID to flu. But before we we hop in that direction, I just want to touch on a handful of more um, symptoms that have been observed in different studies from COVID that seem to indicate that there may be long term damage. So we've talked about yeah, dog, it gets even worse. Oh god, yeah. So we've talked about the neurological disorders. Um, There are two different studies. One that showed that about twenty percent of all hospitalized patients suffer heart damage. Uh, hospitalized patients from COVID, hospitalized because of COVID, and heart damage, heart inflammation is often irreparable and is permanent. Um, another study, and this was a Chinese study, so you can, uh, um, you know, uh, discount <laughs> any sort of believability factor into this into this number as you see fit. And I, I don't trust data coming out of China as much. But this this study, and you got to keep in mind that the Chinese Communist Party has motivation to try to like make it seem not as bad as possible, but. This study found that uh, some sort of lung scarring occurred in 77% of all COVID patients. Um, And I would need to double check. Let me see if this is 77% of all hospitalized patients. One second, let me pull this up. While you're pulling that up, it is interesting that we're like, remember that all these authoritarian countries have an incentive to try to make the numbers look as good as possible. And, uh, you know, but that's an authoritarian country thing. And uh, I'll just leave you to fill in. I'll leave you to fill in the rest about about who might be telegraphing that they want the numbers to look as good as possible, no matter what the reality looks yeah. like on the ground. Yeah, I, I don't I don't immediately have whether that 77 percent is all hospitalized patients or all patients. My guess is hospitalized patients. But yeah. still, that's a very high number. Um, it's it's too soon to know whether that that lung scarring is permanent or not. But um, according to the Mayo Clinic, uh, lung scarring is often permanent. So not all the time, but sometimes. So we know that there's, um, you know, uncomfortably large risks that you incur very serious health damage if you're hospitalized. So that's called, uh, you know, uh, for wonks out there, that's conditional pro- uh, probability, right? If you get COVID, what's your risk of being hospitalized? Um, and, and if you're hospitalized, what's your risk of all this other stuff? Yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it seems like what we haven't covered yet is if you get COVID, what's your risk of being hospitalized, which you're going to get to. But what we do know is if you're hospitalized, you've got these very, very high risks. We're talking 70, 80 percent of getting all this awful stuff like ICU delirium where you think your limbs are being chopped off or, you know, or lung scarring. And then other, you know, other ones we don't know that are. Pretty, oh yeah, twenty percent chance of getting heart damage. <laughs> oh god! And you can walk out with all of it, right? You can walk out paralyzed, lungs crippled, heart crippled, right? Because these, it's this isn't like you know, don't don't let the gambler's fallacy get you. If you get one of them, it doesn't decrease the likelihood that you're going to yeah. get another. Yeah, exactly. And we don't 
really fully understand the underlying mechanisms that you know are relating all of these uh, long-term consequences to one another. But you know, chances are they're related somehow, right? Because they're all coming from some sort of damage to our bodies caused by COVID. Yeah. So the poor, the poor doofus that you know that went to a beach party on the Fourth of July that then spent the next three months in the hospital, but comes out paralyzed with PTSD, heart damage, lung damage, you know, and other neurological disorders, that person does not count in the case fatality ratio. Exactly. So the next question you might be asking yourself is like, okay, we've talked about what can happen if I'm hospitalized, but um, what are my chances of being hospitalized if I catch COVID? And that's what we're going to talk about next. This data is, uh, turns out, available. (laughs) Um, and I, it's, it'll be worth after we talk about some of these risks, briefly talking about sort of where the data comes from, cause I do think it's important, but, mm. um, let's say you catch COVID. What are your chances of being hospitalized? Right? Well, by age group, um, it's, I'll start at 20 to 30 year olds. If you catch COVID, there's about a 3% chance you're hospitalized. If you're between the ages of 20 and 29. Um, there's a f- 5% chance of being hospitalized if you're between the ages of 30 and 39. So Eric, that's you and me. We have a one yep. in 20 chance of being hospitalized if we catch COVID. Um, and it keeps going up by age group, unsurprisingly, yeah. between 40 and... 70- Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, it climbs up and then 75 to 84, it's a 32% chance. And then 85% plus it drops to 24, possibly because it just kills you right there and you don't make it to the hospital. I don't know. Yeah, I, I actually think that's right, because on, you're looking at the infographic that, that um, we have on the website now. And if you look at the next page, which is uh, the chance that you die if you're hospitalized for 85 plus year olds is actually over 100 percent. And you might think, how, how can that make sense um, for, you know, die twice? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I for the sake of convenience in in this analysis and in this infographic, I am assuming that if you die and it's a confirmed death that you were probably hospitalized first because someone had to be around to confirm the death. And that means that you, someone had to probably be around to confirm the hospitalization. Clearly, this is not true in all cases, but you know it's going to be true in a lot of cases. And I thought it was still useful showing the death to hospitalization rate, even if not you know every person who's going to have a confirmed death from COVID was hospitalized first. Now, if you're 85 years or older, a lot of those people were going to be in nursing homes when they caught COVID, which meant that they could die and not be hospitalized. So that actually means that that's how you get that 125% number, I think. You have a lot of people who uh, were old in nursing homes, caught COVID, either they or their families decided not to hospitalize that person. Um, And a lot of the times families will decide if like a very old individual has pneumonia, for example, it's better they die in their room than in a hospital, you know, surrounded by stressed out healthcare workers and other people dying. Um, So that's that. I think that's why the hospitalization rate falls for 85 plus year olds because so many people got it and died in nursing homes. Yeah. But the- Continuing to go up by age real quick, 40 to 49-year-olds, if you catch COVID, you have about an 8% chance of being hospitalized. 50 to 64-year-olds, it's about 13%. 65 to 74-year-olds, 25%, one in four, that's pretty high. And then between 75 that's my and- mom. It's what? That's my mom. That's my mom's age group. Yeah, my dad's age group, my mom's age group too. Um, that's, that's uncomfortably large to me, right? Because even if they don't die, even if they're in good health- um, 
and and you got to keep in mind that this 25% figure for 65 to 74 year olds, that's everyone in that age. And some people are going to be less at risk in that age group and more at risk. It's an aggregation. It's, you know, it, we have to deal with that. But one in four, like that is an uncomfortably large number for me to imagine like my mom or my dad getting it and then having to be hospitalized alone, uh, surrounded by other people who are dying, struggling to hold on to their lives, possibly ventilated and not able to talk, have no family around. Um, that's 25%. That's scary. That's a very big number. Yep. Yes. This is your mom in a hospital with a ventilator, not able to talk while she's experiencing very vividly having her limbs chopped off. Yeah. So if, if those numbers fly by you and are a little hard to, oh, and 75 to 84 year old, sorry, that's 32%, so about a third. If, if these numbers kind of fly by you, check out the infographic on reconsidermedia.com. This is in part mm-hmm. two. You'll, it'll be visualized in a way that makes it, I promise, um, more intuitive. Now, the one warble I need to throw in here yeah. is that this is confirmed cases. And what we know about confirmed cases is that probably, or sorry, certainly the total number of cases is higher yes. because there is at least one person who's unconfirmed. And the like estimates from some sampling, um, so, so what happens is you, know, you have regular testing and then like someone will go in and take a sample and just try to test everyone in an area. Um, and it's the, the total number of cases is, is depending on the state, depending on who did it, somewhere between like 2 and 7x what we see here. So what that means is that these numbers are of confirmed cases as opposed to just all cases. And um, so it means necess- I think it means necessarily that the actual, you know, if you if the virus, you know, boop, pops in your nose, um, the odds of actually going to the hospital are are necessarily somewhat lower than here versus the odds of going to the hospital if you test if you get tested and test positive and it's entirely possible that there's a bias. This is where it gets really interesting. There's a bias for testing towards symptomatic people, right? Cause you get tested when you're like, Oh, I'm a little short of breath and I have a fever. Okay. I should get tested. Um, now there's a whole bunch of people who are tested that aren't symptomatic cause they have to get tested for their job. Right? So there's a, maybe a slight bias towards symptomatic people getting tested versus, um, you know, versus people getting tested for, you know, for, for reasons of their employment or, or, or other, you know, other, other like regular checkups for, uh, that, that are, you know, uh, that, that are just part of their daily lives. So the, these numbers, it, it, you know, you can't, you, these numbers are precise, but not accurate. Um, and we don't know by, to what extent they're not accurate. Right. Exactly. Data is only good at data. D- conclusions from data is only as good as the data that you have. Right. And I think it's important to, uh, keep in mind whenever you're, uh, analyzing uh you know bits of data like this and or not bits but you're trying to you know aggregate all of this information and make some sort of like interpretation conclusion from it that you're still trying to understand things through a lens of uncertainty right statistics is trying to make decisions under uncertainty and uh, we just can't possibly know everything so a lot of this is still estimates but you know there are estimates in a way that have not always been talked about and that represent the data in a new way that portrays the risk differently, even if it's still kind of just an estimate. Um, the complaint I want to yeah. the complaint I want to make here is that the it, doing actual just like random sampling, as opposed to 
hey, you can only get tested if you're either in this situation or that situation, right? Whenever you put a situation or whenever you put a condition on being tested, you're going to bias the sample set. Yes. Whereas if you do like random mass randomized testing, that's where um, statisticians can go like, ooh, a randomized data set. Let's go nuts because you can start drawing bigger conclusions from that. Because if the randomized data set is big enough, you can say, well, there's there's very low likelihood of a bias here, which is where you get p-values and and um, uh, error rates and all that good stuff. So we can start to draw strong conclusions from that. And Congress uh, said, OK, let's start doing that random sampling. So so, hey, executive, here's a bunch of money. Um, start doing random sampling. Uh, but then, you know, things started looking bad. And in a certain rally, in a certain place, a certain person who was in charge of that money said, I told them to slow the testing down. And so it's really limited our ability to, to understand this from a, from a macro perspective, but also, you know, it means that, that uh, people who are at risk and running around spreading it don't know it. Right. Whereas if we were getting randomly tested and we said, Oh shoot, I'm positive. I otherwise feel fine. I should self quarantine. You know, it'd be, uh, we we might be spreading the disease a lot slower and and or almost certainly would and and fewer people would either die or or be paralyzed or have heart problems or lung scarring or you know have a tube down their throat feeling like their limbs are being cut off. Yeah, it is. It is not a partisan partisan thing, a partisan statement to say that the president has impeded the nation's ability to collect higher quality data about COVID and its risks that would allow us to make more informed decisions because that's what happened. Right. Yes. Both globally and individually. Yes. Right. Because because individuals being empowered with knowing whether they are positive or not really impacts their ability to make some decisions or their employer to make some decisions about self-quarantining that would limit the spread and therefore and necessarily you know if you limit the spread you limit the death and the mayhem exactly so people are people are dying unnecessarily it's real sad so hopping back to these um risk rates of your hospitalized let's say you are hospitalized for covid what are your chances at that point of dying and this is a little bit different than the CFR rate because the CFR rate says if you catch COVID, what's your chance of mm. dying? So clearly, if you're hospitalized, you have a severe case, you have a greater chance of dying. Um, but as we've already said, like your chances of being hospitalized if you catch COVID are uncomfortably large, even if you're young. One in 20 for you and me, Eric. I wouldn't play those odds for something that could leave me with po- uh, permanent health damage, right? Not unless the other side of it was a buttload of money. It, right, exactly. <laughs> Big buttload of money. But right now I'm playing with, do I go to a beach party? You know, it's sort of like, sort of like, do I bet on beach party? One in 20 chance of ending up in the hospital. And then a one in 20 or one in five chance after that of ending up with a tube down my throat. I'm going to not bet on beach party. But what if it's a really sweet beach party, man? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Back to the fun part. Uh, If you're hospitalized (laughs) and you're between the ages of 20 and 29, you have a three and a half percent chance of dying. Uh, still uncomfortably large, but not huge, right? I mean, is, wasn't wasn't the death wasn't the death rate of American troops in World War II about that? I'm going to look that up right now while you read other stuff because I I want some comparisons for these numbers. Yeah, um, definitely. If you're between the ages and thirty and thirty nine, your chances of dying if you've been hospitalized are one in twenty. So actually, there's a little bit of uh, symmetry there. If you catch COVID, there's a 1 in 20 chance you're hospitalized if you're between 30 and 40. And then if you're hospitalized, a 1 in 20 chance that you die if you're in that age group. Um, If you're between the ages of 40 and 50 and you're hospitalized, there's about a 1 in 10 chance you die, 10%. 
between the ages of 50 and 64, if you're hospitalized, there's about a 20% chance that you die. Uh, and it goes up from there. Between the ages of 60 and 74, if you're hospitalized, there's about a 40% chance that you die. And if you're hospitalized between, between the ages of 75 and 84, there's a very good chance you'll die 62%. So better than average that you die if you're hospitalized at that age group. Okay, fun fact time. Um, Xander, I'm going to hit you. I'm going to hit you. Uh, hit you blind here. Boom. Uh, um, what percentage of Americans who saw combat, who saw combat, not just troops, but saw combat in World War II, what percentage of them died from either killed in action or other uh, other causes related to their war in World War II? In World War II. Um, I actually think I might be able to estimate this. Let me think. Um, I'm going to say a little greater than 1%. Right, so just, just slightly greater than 1%. <laughs> yes. So you've got, you've, and, and by the way, it's based, I've, I think with the exception of the Korean War, it's basically gone down since then, right? So, so like, you know, Iraq, tiny percentage um, compared to, uh, you know, compared to World War II. So, if you end up in the hospital, you've got a, even as a young person, like you're 20 or 29, and someone says, okay, you want to live to 50. Should you go to war and be in combat, or should you be hospitalized with the coronavirus? You would pick war by a factor of three. Sorry, more than three these days, right? So you end up in the hospital with the coronavirus, you're much more likely to die than, much, much more likely to die than going to World War II and fighting it. But Boom. I'm not sure if that's right, because you said it's a little greater than 1% of the population of World War II. No, 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 no. Oh, I was 1% wrong. 1% of people who faced combat. I was wrong. Wow. So yeah. it is much riskier as a 20 to 29-year-old to be hospitalized for COVID than to go fight in World War II. Correct. Whew. God, that's scary. Whew. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. All right. That gave me a chill. Uh, Okay, so we've, we've talked about um, what your chances of being hospitalized are if you catch COVID. So the next logical question you might be asking yourself is, okay, what are my chances of catching COVID? If I'm young, um, maybe I'm at a lower risk right, of catching it than if I'm older. And it turns out that's actually not true. Um, and we have this on the infographic as well. Um, aside from the very elderly, so 85 or older, um, your, your chances actually generally increase if you're younger of catching COVID. It's about um, 1% for 65 to 74-year-olds, 1.3% for 50 to 64-year-olds, 1.4% uh, for 30 to 39-year-olds, and 1.6% for 20 to 29-year-olds. So and that kind of makes sense because if you're younger, you're probably more likely to think that COVID won't kill you. So you're more likely to go out. And that's really what's been happening over the last two months, right? Um, now the number for 85 plus year olds is quite high. It's 2.5%. And again, that kind of makes sense if you're familiar with what happened in the nursing homes where there's really several outbreaks in the early phases of COVID, but your chances actually of getting COVID go up if you're younger. So, um, but they all kind of hover between one and one and a half percent. So regardless of who you are in the population, your chances of catching COVID are not that different. So you can look at these risk metrics that we've compiled by age group and know that if you stand as good a chance of catching COVID as anyone else, basically, and a little bit more of you're younger. So you can just kind of go down the list from there. Now, these percents of catching COVID, one to one and a half percent, they represent 
total confirmed cases divided by the population for each age group. Now, clearly, confirmed cases can only go up. They can't go down. So these 1% to 1.5% figures of your risk of catching COVID are going to continue to go up as confirmed cases go up. There is no reverse in those figures, and they're not going to be constant. Right. I, I actually have to... I was scratching my head about the 1% because I was like, wait a minute, didn't 400,000 Americans die? And yes, 400,000 Americans died. 400,000 service people died in World War II. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to, to do this to you. Um, I'm at nationalworldwar2museum.org. And uh, we had a total of 12.2 million service people and 407,000 deaths, which is 3%. And what I don't understand is why what I'm reading you is, quote, combat survivability out of, out of 1,000, 8.6 were killed in action and three from other causes, which would be 11.6 out of 1,000, which would give you 1.16%. I don't know why we have a difference between that 3% and that 1.16%, but the, so, so uh, in, lieu of any, in lieu of understanding anything else, uh, probably 3% likelihood of dying in World War II if you, saw con- or, uh, if you were a service person, and that would mean it's about equal to young, healthy people catching the coronavirus and going to the hospital. That, so That might be something we're looking into. I am curious about that. My, my initial gut is it has something to do with like uh, service members who saw combat versus didn't. And I, I don't know, but we should look into that. That's, that's a good question. Yeah. Anyway, so, but still, comp- so, so about the same, right? So it's, it's like go, going, to, going into World War II, uh, you had at least as good a chance of surviving that as if you go to the hospital with the coronavirus as a 20 something. Right. Yeah. So, so like, that's how bad it is. And then if 30 or 39, it's, you know, it's, you have a, you're 60% better off going to war 40 to 49. You're almost three times better off going to war again, world war two. Um, Iraq is, is Iraq and Afghanistan are radically, radically better chances. Um, like astronomically better chances. Yeah. Um, uh, fifty to sixty-four percent. You're seven x better going to World War II. That not that anyone that age went to World War right. II. So you get the idea. So another risk metric that has been thrown around a lot um, in the COVID narrative has been how deadly or how dangerous dangerous it is compared to the flu. It's a pretty reasonable comparison yeah. to make too, right? Because it's something we're familiar with that happens all the time. If COVID is not substantially more deadly or dangerous, non-deadly but dangerous than the flu, then, you know, it makes reasonable sense that we should not radically change the structure of the economy to try to account for it because it's not that different than something we face every year. Now, We've already talked a lot about how the CFR has been the focus. The death rate has been the focus of, of COVID reporting. And the comparison that you've probably heard is, you know, the death rate from the flu is about 0.1%. And if you're between the ages of 30 to 39, the death rate of COVID is about 0.3%. So it's, it's, you know, three times deadly, but a pretty low number, right? Now, we've already talked about why hospitalizations might be a more comprehensive risk. When looking at COVID, especially if you're not in the prime dying age from COVID, but looking at hospitalizations for COVID compared to flu and death for COVID compared to flu by age group shines a little bit more light on the severity of the risk of COVID relative to the flu. So let's walk through some of that now. Um, And from 
this analysis, it's part three of this series that we're doing on reconsidermedia.com. I took the 2017 to 2018 flu season in particular because it was um, categorized as a high... It's a bad se- one, right? Yeah. Yeah. The CDC called it a high severity flu season. So a particularly bad one. And the 2019 number... So the 2019 numbers are less severe and the preliminary numbers are in, which is the, the 2017 to 18, they're non-preliminary anymore. Um, so... One thing that really stuck out in this analysis when I looked at risk of hospitalization from COVID compared to risk of hospitalization for flu was this age group in the middle, actually, that I don't think anyone else has been talking about, aside from maybe like health experts and epidemiologists, but 50 to 64 years old. Um, You heard it here first, people. You kind of did. Yeah. If you are in that age group, your risk of being hospitalized from the 2017 to 2018 flu is about 1%, not huge. If you're in that age group, your risk for being hospitalized from COVID is over 13%, which means that you're 12 and a half times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID than flu if you're in the ages of 50 to 64, where again, that's an order of magnitude difference. Literally. Literally. Um, and we can walk through- some- Not figuratively, literally. Literally, literally. Literally, literally. Um, and and it's, it's a little lower for some of the other groups, but for each age group, you are substantially more likely to be hospitalized for COVID than, than flu, even if you're very young. People age 5 to 17 years old, you're three and a half times more likely to be hospitalized from COVID. Um, from 18 to 49, you're four and a half times. Um, and if you're wondering why I'm doing 18 to 49 now, and I've done 20 to 29 and 30 to 39 for the other groups... Or the, I am wondering that. Yeah, it's just because the uh, data that the CDC makes available for the 2017 to 18 flu season, they bucket mm-hmm. the age groups differently. There you go. So it's at least the data I found, they show 18 to 49 as a group and they don't break that out anymore. Right. And and this is this shouldn't be surprising to anyone who's put a few brain cells in a room to to talk about this, right? Because you know, the flu doesn't overwhelm the hospital system. And it's not even the flu season right now. Like one of the tremendous blessings of the coronavirus is that it didn't happen during the effing flu season when you have a bunch of people in the hospital from it. Right now, that said, it, 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 that's coming. If we think that's, it's coming and we have, you know, we're, we're hitting records of daily cases and we're hitting records of hospitalizations and then the flu season comes and then what happens, right? Like, like you want to scare, like that's a, that's a scary future. Uh, but so far, not the case. And, um, you know, but like it shouldn't be surprising that the hospitalization rate is much higher because, you know, we go around like the flu season. We don't even wear masks. We don't quarantine. We don't do any of that stuff. And the hospitals don't get overwhelmed. And then even with, you know, at least some level of like some people are wearing that. Actually, most people are wearing masks from what I understand, but but not enough. And um, but some level of social distancing and masks and and restrictions on what we can do to be near each other and hospitals are getting overwhelmed. Right. So of course the hospitalization rate must be much higher. Right. Um, another interesting uh, finding from, if you compare the rate of hospitalizations to the uh, for COVID versus the flu for 65 plus year olds, the it's only 1.3 times, which means you're only 1.3 times more likely to be hospitalized mm-hmm. for COVID if you're 65 years or older. And you kind of go, Oh, that doesn't seem like that much of a difference, and it's not. And that's merely because if you're in that high-risk age group already, then you're fairly likely to be hospitalized for the flu. That kind of makes sense because you can get pneumonia if you're 65 or 70, right, just from the flu, and that could potentially be quite dangerous. Well, the other thing we know about that age group is that uh, the coronavirus just like 
what we know, you know, you've got that death to hospitalization rate of 1.2 of 124%. So what we know is that a lot of people who get the coronavirus, like a, a very large portion of the very elderly who get the coronavirus just drop dead. Like they don't even make it to the hospital. That's true. Yeah. So you, th- that's one way of comparing the relative risk between COVID and flu is just, you know, your percent chance of being hospitalized for, by COVID divided by your percent chance of being hospitalized by flu. You can do the same thing for risk of death. And here the numbers are, frankly, even starker, uh, a little scarier. Um, but this 50 to 64-year-old age group kind of really jumps out again. And if you see the, the chart uh, on, on, this, on this article, you'll see why. But if you're in this age group, 50 to 64 years old, you're over 50 times more likely to die from COVID than the flu. Jesus Christ! Which, again, we're talking almost two orders of magnitude more significant to die. And that's, again, not really the most at-risk age group in terms of the death rate that we've been hearing no. about, right? But it's just way worse than, than the flu. Yeah, so it's one of those things that, like, yeah, so they've got a 2.64% chance, you know, CFR is 2.64% versus 0.05% with, uh, you know, with the flu. So basically, like, you know, probably driving on the highway is more likely to kill you than catching the flu if you're in that age group. I don't know if that's true, but, you know, but coronavirus, you start getting 2.64%. So we're looking at, you know, we're looking at case fatality ratios approximate of, of just catching it for the 50 to 64 group, similar to going to World War II and fighting in combat, right? And um, yeah, that's a huge difference. One, one question I have for you, Xander, is your chart here says that all ages is a 28.4x um, increase in the likelihood of dying. How does that square, and maybe we don't know the answer yet, we need to follow up, but how does that square with the 3x number that you'd said earlier that like, you know, coronavirus is probably 3x more deadly than the flu? Yeah, so the problem here are are uh, the different categories, right? When I said 3x, I was only referring to people aged 30 to 39 because uh, the CFR in that group is 0.3% and the CFR for all of the flu is 0.1%. So if you're 35, you're right. thinking, "Oh, I'm only slightly more likely to die from the flu from COVID than the flu." But the Got total it. case fatality rate from COVID, I actually have that here. It's about three, yeah, it's like three and a half, four percent. But again, that's of confirmed cases. It's not of all cases, so it's in reality probably a little lower than that. Got it. Okay, so so yes, of confirmed cases, right, 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 of confirmed cases. So we're talking about thirty x. But again, if we adjust for that, like two to seven x, whatever it is. So let's say it's five, five, you know, one in five people with the coronavirus in the United States have been tested. Then we divide that by five and 28 divided by five is about 5.5. So you're still at least 5.5 X as likely across all age groups of dying 18 to 49. You're at least three and a half times more likely in reality. 50 to 64, it's still 10 X more likely. Yeah. So that's that, that's that's bad. It is much, much, much more deadly. Yeah. And I also understand it's much, much, much more higher or not much more transmissible. That's another thing, right? Is you can pass this thing along. Uh, well, one, it's more contagious than the flu, period. And then two, it's more contagious than the flu. Also, in part, because you can pass it when you're not showing symptoms. Whereas with the flu, right. your you're peak, you're most contagious when you've begun to be symptomatic. Now, e- even though that age group, 50 to 64 years old, is 50 times more likely to die from COVID than the flu, once you get into the CFR, and you'll see this on the article, 
people age 65 and older are still clearly facing the largest uh, death burden from COVID. They're only only 20 times more likely to die from COVID than the flu, but their CFR, the chances that they die if they get COVID is 17%, and it's only about 0.9% for the flu. The, the last bit of this article that's going to go up either later today or tomorrow, which is the flu versus COVID comparison, says, okay, so we know that the rates of hospitalization and death are much higher for COVID than flu, but so far only, only about 4 million people have, been, um, have had confirmed cases of COVID. And interestingly, this has already gone up by like over half a million from when I did this analysis like last weekend, so it's growing ago, yeah. quickly right now. Yeah. Whereas the flu figures that I used are based on a total symptomatic illness count of about 45 million. So the CDC estimates that about 45 million Americans had symptomatic illnesses of the flu. So that doesn't mean that it was confirmed in the same way of COVID because, you know, with COVID, people are actually keeping track of each and every tally. Um, And the 45 million is an estimate that the CDC made, but it's based on actual medical visits and hospitalization. So it's a reasonably informed estimate of how many people caught the flu and showed symptoms in 2017 to 2018. 45 million Americans. So I thought, fine. Um, What if 45 million Americans caught COVID? Because frankly, that's the direction we're heading in right now, right? And if the death and hospitalization rates persisted as they currently are, and 45 million Americans caught COVID, what would we be seeing in terms of the total disease burden in the US? I don't like this graph. It's it's a little frightening, isn't it? And actually, the, the comparisons to World War II and World War One are something that I plan to add to this article before it's all done, Eric. And folks, you'll, you'll see why this will be a useful comparison. Because if, if 45 million people in America catch COVID and the same death and hospitalization rates apply as have applied so far, then we could expect about 1.7 million Americans of all ages to die. The Spanish flu, by the way, killed... Fewer than 700,000 Americans, Americans. Yeah. And that was and by the way, it had the opportunity to spread in like the 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 poo covered, you know, tight quarters, muddy, literally bodies in the more in, in the trenches, trenches of World War One. And it killed 675,000 Americans. 1.7 million Americans seems like a, a non I mean, the whole point of reconsider is we try to not be sensational and we try to show both sides of the story and make you reconsider based on like new information that or new perspectives on information that you may not have come across yet. And I can't think of any way to conceptualize this 1.7 million figure, but like terror, right? Because the comparison to the flu, by the way, is about 62,000 Americans died between 2017 and 2018. So that means that I'm doing the math right now. Um, 28 times as many people would die from COVID if the same number of people caught it as they did one of the most severe flus in recent history. And and remember, that's if it's the same amount of people and the coronavirus is much more contagious. Right. So there's actually like 1.7 million isn't even the upper bound because you because it's like if we start getting a whole lot of people that have it, then a whole lot more people are going to have it because it's more contagious. So there's a decent chance if we're dumb, which we're being, that's my, that's my opinion. But if we're dumb, that more than 45 million Americans are going to contract coronavirus. Yeah. 
we've already at four million tallied right now, right? And so it's like, oh well, guys, why haven't one hundred seventy thousand died yet? Because it takes time. Yeah. Um, right. We're at one hundred and and note. Actually, sorry, yeah. we're at one hundred forty six thousand out of the four million that have died. So if we multiply that by tenfold, right, we'll be at. 1.5 million, right? So actually this math lines up pretty well. And still we know there's like a two week lag and the biggest numbers have been recently. So even if we stopped right now getting new cases, we'd probably pass hundred, you know, well over 170,000 deaths. And uh, yeah. And so, so if it, you know, if we get 10 times as many people getting it, right, we'd have 10 times the number of deaths. Like this 1.7 million is nowhere. And, and we say, oh, well, 10 times, that's a lot. It's like, well, yeah, it is. But the the daily case rate is going up. And, you know, Dr. Fauci is talking about, well, I mean, you know, he, he's testifying to Congress saying, you know, we might be getting 100,000 a day. Right. And so 100,000 a day, that would mean what, 400, you know, to, to get another 4 million. It would mean 400 days. So it'd mean in, in, you know, take a year, right? Now that hundred, that's likely unlikely that it would stop on hundred thousand day if we're being really dumb, we'd go up from there. But, you know, but we're talking about, uh, you know, another million and a half people dying over the next year or so. And, you know, what else has killed a million Americans in a single year? Has anything, has anything, one thing killed a million Americans in a year? I mean, it depends on how you define thing. I don't really know. But if you talk about like mass casualty events like wars, for example, and which seems like a good analogy, right? Because we were already talking about World War II deaths. Um, About 400,000 Americans died in World War II and about 300,000 of those were combat deaths, right? Are those the numbers that you have? I have slightly different numbers, I think. I'm just pulling them from Wikipedia for... That sounds about right. And then, uh, you know, we say, oh, the Civil War killed a million people over four years. That took four years. So that's 250,000 a year. Right. And we're going to we're going to smoke that, by the way, this year. We're going to sail right by a quarter million. So worse than the Civil War, which is the war that killed the most Americans of any war in history. I wonder how many people die of like heart disease. per year. About 500,000. It's between five and 600,000, which. There we go. Yeah. Uh, I did uh, an article on this a couple of years ago on the risk of terrorism versus other illnesses. So you can find that there. I'll, I'll post a link to it. So what we're saying is like, it's not out of the realm. It's not out of the realm of possibility that the coronavirus per year kills more Americans than anything ever. In American history. Yeah. In America, in history, in American history. That is not period. Yeah. It's not a radical statement. Uh, that's based right. on some of the data we have. Um, right. And it could end up being, you know, uh, five times as deadly, roughly, as World War II for Americans, depending on which numbers you use. Um, f- 15 times as deadly as World War I, if you include all deaths, not just combat deaths. If you look at just combat deaths, it's like 30 times more deadly than World War I for Americans. Three times as deadly as the Spanish flu. Three times as deadly as the Spanish flu. And again, you might be a young adult and thinking, okay, well, my chances of dying are pretty young. And it's true. And even in this extrapolated death count that I have, only only about 50,000 Americans would die between the ages of 18 and 50, which, you know, again, comparable to Vietnam in a year. But still, you're in the point something percent range for if you're between 30 and 40 or so. But your chances of being hospitalized are still quite high. In fact, if the same number of people in the U.S. catch covid as uh, they got the 2017 uh, influenza about, about over four and a half million Americans would be hospitalized. And a much larger number of those are coming from 
the younger age groups. And you can see all of this. So when you think about COVID, think about the total number of deaths that could happen if it spreads as far as the flu has. And if you're not in the high death rate group, think about what the chances of your uh, of being hospitalized are and incurring some of these long-term consequences we've talked about. And that's that's really only from the self-interested sort of perspective. And to be completely honest, part of the reason that I, I structured these articles from the 20 to 39 year old age group is because it does seem to me like a lot of people in that age group, a lot of people my age have been extremely self-interested in the last couple of months. And it's actually quite discouraging to me because ultimately they're not at the greatest risk from COVID. Older people still are. And the fact is, if you go around spreading this thing, you know, you could end up in a hospital or you could end up sending people to a hospital. And the, the, the sad situation is that doctors are having to triage in a way that they haven't had to in, in decades because, you know, some of right. them have, just, have described it as warlike scenarios where they just have to decide who gets treatment and who doesn't because treatment's limited. And if you're a 33-year-old and you get hospitalized for COVID, a doctor might have to make the calculation that you have 40 years of good life left versus a 75-year-old who might only have 10 years of good life and you get the ventilator, even if you are so out grandma. at that beach party. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So long, Grandma. And, uh, and by the way, the, the other thing I want to scare you guys about, Xander, do you know how many, this is coming from the CDC, do you know how many hospital beds are in the United States total? No. Well, wild guess. Uh, hospital beds in the U.S. I don't total. Uh, 500,000. Oh, blessedly, it's more than that. Good. It's 950,000. Good. So 950,000, right? So we're, and we're talking about, and you know, these don't all happen at the same time, but we're talking about millions being taken up, you know, millions of those less than a million being taken up by the coronavirus. And then we have all the other things too, right? It's not like, it's not like the United States before the coronavirus had like an 80% availability rate of these hospital beds, right? Like no country does, but in particular, the United States has a fairly low hospital bed per patient ratio. Turns out Ireland actually also has a very low one, as, as I know from my girlfriend's family. They actually, Ireland actually had, this is just a, an aside, before the coronavirus, I remember specifically visiting Ireland in December, and it was kind of like the national scandal was that, was that like they were out of hospital beds. They were just out. And luckily, Ireland clamped down on the coronavirus pretty quick and hard, unlike us. But yeah, it, it's the, the, we can't even, we can't even really start talking about what happens when all the beds are full that the when all the hospitals are packed to the gills and people are you know in like are in beds in hallways where you know ventilators are being massively rationed where people are showing up with gunshot wounds or whatever right or or car crashes or other diseases right heart attacks strokes all this stuff and they show up and it's like there's they're like and and every hospital is f right that world is a scary fucking world. And it's not outside of the realm of possibility in the United States over the next six months, the way that the coronavirus has been growing here. No, that's, I mean, I mentioned this to folks maybe a month or so ago when um, it just seemed inevitable that it was going to spread again based on, um, you know, people's behaviors also the protests and there's there's different you know data we can get into with protests and whether or not that's justified or not but it seemed inevitable that the case count was going to grow as of a month month and a half ago and the problem was if you start getting exponential growth again it's based off 
you know, a much larger base of people starting than they did right. in February. Because what, like, at, at one point, one American had to have COVID, and then it had to grow from there. And it was much closer to one in February than, you know, it was a million. But now, you know, there are 4 million confirmed cases of COVID. I don't know what that means in terms of, like, active cases right now today. But we talked about 500,000 cases appearing in the last couple of days. So maybe there's a million or a million and a half active cases right now. You start applying exponential growth to a much larger base like that, you start getting really big numbers. And that's kind of scary. Real fast. Yeah. Yeah. That's what exponential growth does. It's big and it's fast. Looking at this thing right now, let's see, active cases in active in Florida, 418,000. Active in California, 448,000. Active in Texas, 163,000. Active in Illinois, 165,000, et cetera. You know, even New York is still at during 6,000. So uh, this is from Johns Hopkins University, coronavirus.jhu.edu. They've got, that's what I often rely on. They're pulling from all sorts of sources. They're smart folks. And so like, at, here at Reconsider, we don't do the thinking for you. We have given you all of the data you need. but. I'm going to tell you the obvious conclusion from this in case you're not on board yet. Wear a fucking mask, dipshits. And and like, is it is it, you know, is it uncomfortable to go to your friends who are not wearing masks and like slap them around a little bit and tell them to wear a fucking mask? Yes, it is uncomfortable. Is it important? It's extremely important. And and this is the thing, this is the this is the problem with exponential curves. And percentages on percentages on percentages is that it's hard to wrap your head around, right? And that's why, you know, we have epidemiological experts that advise Congress and the executive and different state executives and all this stuff about what they should do, because you can't sit every American down in March and say, yeah, 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 there's only a couple hundred right now. And yeah, 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 the death rate probably looks like it's something like 3%, which doesn't seem all that high. And you know, yeah, 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 it's it's not where the flu is yet. But, you know, if we use this art, like, you know, just imagine trying to explain this to someone where it's like, look, the R naught is actually, you know, substantially higher than with the flu and the death rates higher than the flu and the hospitalization rates higher than the flu. And we've projected this out with a model. And if we do nothing right, if we kind of treat it like the flu, but with a higher case fatality ratio, a higher hospitalization ratio and much more contagious, then if we do nothing, we could get, you know, we could get a hundred, you know, they'd I remember them saying at the beginning, like, 20 to 60% of Americans get the coronavirus. So we're not talking about 45 million people here, we're talking about 150 million people here, right? And, you know, you divide that by three and we're talking about 10 million people dead. Yeah, because the right? CFR almost certainly goes up if hospitals around the country are over capacity. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, and, and you say that and you go like, oh, that's so alarmist, right? Dr. Fauci, what an alarmist, says the president. And- you know, and, and you look at that, and you go like, look, we're, we only have 300 people and like two people died. Calm down, Dr. Fauci. Right. Don't step on my rights and all that stuff. And but but you can't sit everyone down and walk them through that. And that's why you have regulations and and directives and social, you know, simple directives like wear a fucking mask and social norms and um, and all that stuff to to try to combat this. And. You know, there's been there's been, you know, through whatever causes our country in particular, we've had a higher than it seems we've had a higher than normal group of Americans who have gone, you know, I'm not going to trust the experts there. There's a pandemic. It's a hoax. Uh, it's just the flu. It's just a cold. 
Uh, just all like all this misinformation that people have dropped onto and this weird thing where like wearing a mask is is tyranny. Well, it's like, well, look, if I walk around like everyone who thinks wearing a mask is tyranny, listen up for a sec. Like I am tomorrow. I'll walk around you without my pants on. Right. Just buck naked, junk, junk flying in the breeze. And you come up to me, give me a hard time. And I'll tell you to stop, you know, stepping on my rights as an American to wear what I want. Right. Don't tyrannize me with your pants, right? That's how dumb you sound, except dumber because, you know, not wearing pants is offensive to the eyes. Not wearing a mask kills people. Wear a fucking mask. Yeah, the, uh, the example that I've used for, and I'm, I'm so frustrated that people have been making a deal of the mask. And I know that like, our mission here at Reconsider is to still try to have conversations with these people because there, nothing will get done if you can't talk to people, right? And in my mind, we've talked about all these casualties from war figures in recent, well, in all of American history. We talked about the Civil War too. And already we see that COVID could be worse in terms of total um, disease burden or t- total uh, death burden on the country. But the thing that I'm really grateful for as a 33-year-old who, you know, I'm not my grandfather. I, I didn't have to serve in World War II. I was not drafted. Um, and that was the big historical event of their day. And unfortunately, if you just happen to be born in, you know, the late 19-teens, your lot for the big historical event of your day was having to go see some of the worst act of combat in, in human history, right? And that was the sacrifice you had to make for your country in order to make sure that everyone else was safe. Today, thank God, the sacrifice that I am being asked to make for my country, for the good of my fellow Americans, is to wear a little piece of cloth fabric over my face. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. But boy, am I glad that I don't have to go die in some faraway war, right? And, you know, you think about the risk of terrorism, and I know it's different when there is some other entity actively plotting evil against you and trying to hurt you, right? Rather than some brainless pathogen that can still cause a lot of damage. But so few people died in 9-11 compared to COVID-19. And so few people died over the last 20 years in the war on terror in the U.S. compared to people that have already died from COVID. And yet we're still willing to send our sons and daughters off. I mean, it was my generation that actually went and fight, fought in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So a lot of people my age. But um, if we were willing to send you know, Americans off to go die in something that was, you know, really not going to make us a whole lot safer in terms of the numbers. Why is it that the sacrifice of wearing a mask in order to protect your fellow citizens all of a sudden feels like uh, a step too far? It doesn't make sense to me. And I, I know we really tried to be even to the road. And I, I, it's when we, when you criticize people, you, they put walls up, but man, it's hard for me to see that as anything other than selfish. And it's, it's, Probably, you know, selfishness derived in part by misinformation. So I, I don't entirely blame. Well, I don't know what to make of it anymore. Wear a mask for fuck's sake. It's not it's not a big sacrifice to ask to protect your country. You know, be a patriot. Wear a mask. All right. We're getting cranky. We're we should end the episode there. Yeah. Those of you who do wear a mask consistently. Thank you. And you're uh, the hero thing to do is like, I don't know, go. Not literally, literally, but figuratively, literally, bust someone's junk for not uh, not wearing a damn mask. And actually, what you need to do is is 
you know, it's got to be someone, you know, how's it going to work, right? It's got to be someone, you know, and you've got to sit down with them and, um, you know, and, and talk to them about what, you know, maybe share this episode and, and warn them that Eric and Xander are cranky with them for not wearing a mask, but otherwise, um, actually probably just point them to the infographics, infographics, actually Xander. Yes. Your infographics at reconsidermedia.com sit there and say, look, this is what's very possible here based on what we've seen. And, and the infographics walk you through the stuff that we all already know and says, okay, let's multiply this together. This times this equals this. Holy crap, that's 1.7 million people dead. And you know, and ask them if, if they knew that wearing a mask, you know, and, and God, I, I, I guess some people are like, oh, well, wearing a mask doesn't work. Or if you're wearing it, why do I have to? And there are some other sources for that about transmissibility, but share the infographics with them. They're pretty neat. And hopefully you uh, put the fear of God into them. Now, we'll close off the, out the episode. Um, I do want to make one note about the data because like we said at the, at the beginning of the episode, it's right now it's particularly important that um, people making uh, empirical claims about risk uh, need to be as transparent as possible. So some more info on the source of the data that I use for this analysis. It, it all comes from the CDC. Um, the hospitalization rates specifically come from, it's this organization within the CDC called COVIDnet. And uh, the way COVIDnet works is there are 14 different states that have uh, acute treatment hospitals that report to this system called COVIDnet, and they report all of their hospitalizations related to COVID. So COVIDnet comprises 14 out of 50 states, and about uh, and that represents about 10% of the U.S. population. So that is a sample. That is not the population estimate. So we don't actually have the figure for total hospitalizations in the country. We can only derive them based on this particularly large sample. I mean, a 10% sample of the population is getting to the point where, you know, it's it's beyond statistically significant. But I mean, to your point about uh, bias samples earlier, Eric, because each state and really each municipality to a degree has treated uh, their response to COVID so differently, the hospitalization rates in the states that report to COVIDnet may actually vary between uh, states that are not in COVID net. So, you know, California's uh, hospitalization rates are spiking right now. It might be, I forget if California is one of the states in COVID net, but 10% is a very large sample size. It's usually statistically significant. We can definitely draw some inferences about hospitalization rate in the sample size to the total US population. But we have to keep in mind that states' responses have been quite different. So they may actually vary state to state. And I just wanted to be sure that I talked about that. All right, let's get out of here. Uh, you know, don't don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Maybe you should consider why epidemiological experts are all saying uh, the same thing about what's a good idea in terms of uh, having not millions of Americans die. So, you know, don't let the pundits th- do the thinking for you. It does not extend to distrust what, you know, distrust what experts say on face value because an expert said it, right? You know, do some of your own thinking, but but, you know, dig into well why you know why are they saying that what are they citing etc before just dismissing them outright and listening to some other pundit or uh i don't know reality tv star telling you what to think instead this is eric signing off this is xander signing off we'll see you next time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. 
That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.